Today we're going to be talking about what I believe is the most difficult Bible verse to believe. The title of this message is, And to be born again. And to be born again. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Let us read. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, just so you know, a little background. Last week we learned about Jesus not committing himself to man because he knew what was in man, and they were just after the signs. Here's a guy named Nicodemus, and a Pharisee, as you guys know, was a teacher of the law, and we have a, a pretty bad uh, view of them and their reputation from what we read in the Bible, but Pharisees were really well respected back in the day. Uh, in Jesus' time, the Pharisees were the people that you wanted to be like. People dreamed they could know the Bible as well as the Pharisees, that they were as moral and great as the Pharisees. And so here's a guy named Nick, and he came at night. Nick at night came to Jesus. I got that from Pastor Lloyd, okay? So blame him. And he says something interesting. Shh. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But we know that's wrong because there's even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and does these miraculous wonders. We know the Antichrist is going to do that too. But he's looking at the signs. We know he's coming from a false motive. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what's so interesting about that is that Jesus attacks his fundamental belief. As a Pharisee, you had the, the presupposition that you were automatically accepted by God. You thought just by being Jewish, born into a Jewish family, you were automatically going to heaven. That was their view in that day. They actually believed that Abraham would stand at the gate of hell to make sure none of his descendants would go into it. And so Jesus says to him, it's not enough to be born of the Jewish people. You actually must be born again. This word again is actually a play on words because again can mean from above. So he's saying you must be born from heaven. You must be born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, did he actually believe that? I don't think so. I think he was being a little sarcastic because Nicodemus, hearing this from Jesus, is kind of offended because Jesus was attacking his very fundamental belief that he was accepted into heaven already. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Really funny side note about this is that people have argued so much over this one phrase, born of water and the Spirit. Some people have said, well, this is probably talking about baptism. But the only baptism that people really know is the baptism of John the Baptist at that time. And it wasn't as widespread. So it wouldn't really make any sense for him to talk about that. And if that was really the case, then why wouldn't Nicodemus just get baptized right on the spot? 
So this phrase, born of water and the Spirit, seems like these things are one and the same. Born of water and the Spirit. And so the only uh, real conclusion that you can come, come across, because some people said, well, maybe it's talking about physical birth, but this is talking about a spiritual birth. Uh, and the Jewish understanding of the day wasn't that water, uh, they, they wouldn't use water to, to describe the birthing process. But what this is referring to, and Jesus knew this, and knew this of Nicodemus since he knows the law, this was referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 26, where it says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This was talking about cleansing of sin. Washing you by the water of the word, as Ephesians chapter 5 talks about. So you must be born of the water and of the spirit. It says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who, borns of the, who is born of the spirit. Basically saying, just as the wind, you don't know everything about the wind. But you see its effects. It's the same thing with the spirit. You might not know everything about the spirit. But you see its effect that it does change a life. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things that you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does not come to the, to the light, uh, he who does not come to the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You know, there is a real place called heaven and hell. And because we live here on this earth, it can be so easy to be distracted, so easy to forget that one day everyone here is going to die. On what basis do you get into heaven? On what basis do you make it to heaven versus hell? And so what Jesus says here is so radical and so transforming and so confrontational to Nicodemus. And as we'll see tonight, so challenging to us that it could actually impact your eternal destination. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your scriptures, we need your understanding. We need your strength. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in a mighty way as we go over this challenging text, Lord. We know that wisdom ultimately comes from you. And I pray, Lord, that lives would be changed tonight, hearts would be, would be moved, and we would understand the greatness of your love. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine thinking your whole life that you're in right standing with God. 
but then Jesus telling you that you're not. Can you imagine being at the gates of heaven one day and Jesus asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? How will you defend yourself if Jesus says, I'm sorry, I I never knew you? On what basis would you justify yourself? Maybe you'd be like Nicodemus, who says, I'm born a Jew. I'm born into a Christian home. I've, I've always gone to church. I've always done those things. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus is it's not enough to be born into the right family. You need to be born into a new life. You need to be born of the Spirit. I went to 7-Eleven the other day, and I walk in, and uh, I see a very strange sight, actually. I posted this on Facebook, so I don't know how many of you saw this. I saw a bunch of Hasidic Jewish people taking their yarmulkes off and putting it on the head of the guy who's behind the register. And they said, no, you are a Jew. And they're all like laughing and celebrating. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> nay, you must be born again. <laughs> I didn't actually say that. I just tried to get in and get out as fast as possible because it's an awkward moment for me. Never been around a Jewish conversion. But seriously now, do you look at all the things that you've done and use that as your justification for getting into heaven? I've memorized a lot of scriptures. I've read the Bible a couple times. I've prayed so passionately. And would you object? Would you say, are you saying that I I haven't done enough? That I haven't lived my life in the right way? That I haven't been good enough? And that's what Jesus is saying is that You'll never be good enough. The Bible says that there is none who does good. No, not one in Psalm 14, verse 3. You actually need a new life. You can't enter the regenerated kingdom unless you're a regenerated individual. You must be born of the Spirit. And being born again is the perfect illustration of this because there's absolutely nothing you can do to be born. There is no action on your part. You just are born. You don't try to come out of the womb. It just happens. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt completely helpless? Do you ever have a time in which you felt like there was, you had no power in which to save yourself? There's only one time in my life that I can think about when I was drowning. And it was when I was little and, you know, being in the ocean, being tossed um, by the waves and being so little, I was help, so helpless that I wasn't able to pick myself up again. And I thought I was going to die. And obviously I didn't die. But do you have a situation in which you can think of in which you have been completely helpless? Because I think many of us want to feel in control of our circumstances, have our future secure or know where we're going. But what do you do about a situation in which you have absolutely no capability to bring yourself out of harm's way? And this is what Nicodemus says to him. He says, well, how can a man be born again when he's already old? How can a dead man bring himself back to life? A dead person has absolutely no capability to bring himself to life because he's dead. But this is exactly what Jesus is asking of Nicodemus. To do something of which he has absolutely no control. The word despair, just so you know, means a loss of hope. And in a sense, we need to despair. We need to lose hope in the flesh so that we find hope in the spirit. We need to despair 
lose all hope in ourselves so we find hope in a new life. As Matthew 16, 25 says, whoever, desire, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Robbie Zacharias, many of you guys know, has a really powerful testimony. He was born into a rich family, and as he's growing up into this family, he was going to school, he was getting good grades and all those things, but he just felt so empty and so without hope. And so he tried to commit suicide because he found no reason to con continue on living. But it was while he tried to commit suicide and he was in the hospital that someone read him the Bible and once again he found hope. This is the good news of the Bible. Like it says in verse 13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. This has absolutely nothing to do with your effort. has nothing to do with how hard that you work or, or how good that you try to become. It all has to do with the Lord reaching down and grabbing us. And this is what makes our belief so different from every other religion. Every, every other religion is about man trying to reach God and work hard and, and the gods are battling, they're angry, they're trying to, to, to do something to conquer the world. But in Christianity, the way that life really is, it's God who loves us so much that he reach, reaches down to a disgusting and dirty world to save us from our sins, of which we have no power to help ourselves. So this sounds like amazing grace for the unbeliever, but isn't it true that even Christians can feel despair? Have you ever found that in your own life? Maybe, maybe this doesn't apply to you in a sense that you're already a Christian, you know what it's like to be born again, you pray the prayer, you, you made your confession. What about a person who's a Christian who still feels like they've lost all hope? Maybe it's a family situation that you're going through. And you're in a circumstance that you're just like, I just don't see any way out of this. How is it possible that any good can come from this situation that I'm in? Well, let me ask you, and maybe you want to raise your hand for this. Who in the Bible said that they felt despair? There's one character in particular that said that he himself felt despair. Who was it? Jephren. Job? Nope. Not Job. What's that? Not David. There's one particular person who's a Christian who said he felt despair. Who was it? I'm glad no one knows because I'm going to tell you something new. It was the Apostle Paul. Check this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7-10. through 10. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. Hone in on this. He says... Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt it that, that we had received the sentence of death. But the, here's what he says. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see, it's in your despair that you find that Jesus is even in those midst. 
that Jesus hasn't left you. It's when, as you're a Christian, you're walking through the, the valley of the shadow of death that you realize that God has still not left you. That gives you greater confidence to know that he will be with you in any and all circumstances. Hear what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You realize that your darkest day with Jesus is a day of light. The most darkest of all circumstances, if you have Jesus, is a day of light. Because it's God's word that illuminates the valley of the shadow of death. Gives you hope, something to look for. It's there that you, you're in the depths, you're in the worst of all possible situations and circumstances that you see a glimmer of hope. You despair, you lose all hope in yourself and you realize that you can hope in a new life because that's exactly what Jesus promised to us. Everlasting life, eternal life, a life unlike anything that you can conjure up of yourself. That is something that the world cannot give you. The world can't give you a hope that's unshakable. Only Christ Jesus can do that for you. And if you're a Christian that hasn't yet experienced that, you must be born again. There's only so much that you can do while you're sick. Taking the same medicine over and over and over, realizing the medicine isn't working, that you eventually give up all hope in that medicine and find hope in something else. Many of you guys know that I've, in the past, had a lot of anxiety, a lot of situations in which I would have panic attacks. Maybe you didn't know, know that about me, but that's happened to me over and over again in my years. And while that happens, the first thing that happens when you have a panic attack is that you seriously believe that you're going to die. I don't know how many of you have experienced one of those. I don't, <laughs> I don't recommend it to anyone. But if you have, you seriously feel like you're about to die. But it was in those moments, while I'm a Christian that I saw that God had never left me. And the more that I, I went through a situation, I went through an episode, and I saw that I, I still wasn't dead, God still didn't leave me, it gave me more confidence to know step by step God was walking with me, and he'll continue to be faithful to me. So we might look at this, and we might say along with Nicodemus, we might ask, how can these things be? How can I experience that hope if you have not yet experienced it? Here's what you need to know. Looking is believing. Looking is believing. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What in the world is, is that talking about? What does that mean? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21, please. Numbers chapter 21. The people of Israel are walking out of Egypt, as many of you guys know. They're going to the promised land, leaving the place of sin, going towards God's promises. In that wilderness, in verse 4 of chapter 21 of Numbers, it says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor, from the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. 
and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And you can feel like that while you're in the wilderness, while you're making your journey towards heaven, you're, on, you're, you're here on this earth, you can feel discouraged. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten, bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So me telling you that story probably still doesn't help you. It's like, why, what a weird story. These people get sick because they're complaining. They're very discouraged. They're, they complain. They get all these serpents come out and start biting them. And people start dying. And Moses says, if you look at this serpent on this bronze pole, you'll live. That's all they had to do is just look up and they would be saved, delivered from their agony. The bronze serpent, interestingly enough, here in John is compared with Jesus. But we know a serpent is a picture of Satan, a picture of sin, a picture of evil. How is it that Jesus could be compared with the serpent? Well, bronze is a picture of judgment. And so the bronze serpent was a picture of sin judged. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He was put on a cross. He took our sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that's what Jesus did for us. And the people were saved not by doing anything, but by simply looking to the bronze serpent. If you are without hope today, all you have to do is look to Jesus and looking is believing. There is no doing. There is no, I have to work harder. I have to start reading my Bible. I have to start praying. Those are all great things, but you must simply look to Jesus and the looking is believing. Just as those people were healed simply by taking the action of looking upon. It's something so foolish, right? If you look up, you'll be saved. It sounded so weird, but it's that very means that their salvation had come. And some of you are like, it just seems so simple. All I have to do is put my trust in Jesus. It's really not that simple. I'll guarantee you that. Simple in, in the terms of being easy. It's simple in terms of action, like you don't have to do a lot of actions, but it's not, hard, it's not very easy to put your trust in Jesus because it means giving him your life despairing, losing all hope in yourself and putting hope in someone else. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You don't have to do anything except look to the cross in spite of your despair and believe. You know, it's funny because we'll make the Bible so complicated sometimes. D.L. Moody had this one illustration. He said, there was a man who on a very sunny day was in his dank cellar. And in his cellar, he's, it's all dark, it's gloomy, it's moldy, it's, there's a lot of mildew. And here's a man who's trapped 
in the dungeon of his basement trying to create a light bulb. And the man steps by and says, well, what are you trying to do? He says, oh, I'm trying to make light. He says, why, why don't you just come outside? It's beautiful out. You get some vitamin D. You know, the sun's shining. It's great. He says, no, 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 I got my own light. I'm doing very well with my light bulb over here. Let me just, why don't you mind your own business? In the same way, us as Christians, we work so hard to do our own thing when all you have to do is step into the light. Experience Jesus for yourself. And yet, this is the hardest truth to believe. Verse 16, literally, I, I seriously mean this. I believe this is the hardest truth to believe in the Bible. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Many of you have probably memorized this. In fact, by a show of hands, how many of you know this verse by heart? Almost all of you. How many of you actually believe it? Just to give you a picture of how difficult this is and how confusing this is, think about who wrote this. This is written by John. Many, many scholars believe that Jesus didn't actually say this. This is, and it's no less part of the Bible, obviously. But John, uh, the apostle, wrote this as a little comment in the scripture. So John writes, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But what did John also write in his epistle in 1 John chapter 2? He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. He who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in him. Same guy who wrote, wrote both books. How is it that God, Jesus, can love the world, but we're not allowed to love the world? It's the same Greek word, the word cosmos. And it's not just speaking of a, a few select people. This is talking about an evil world. For God so loved this evil and bad, sinful world. How is it that God is allowed to love sinning people? And yet we're not allowed to. Maybe you've never thought about that before. Here are some objections though. Here are some difficulties and barriers to believing the simple verse. Some of you might say, well, doesn't God have to love me? You ever think that? Sometimes... The impact of, the, of this verse is, is minimized because we think God has to love us. It's in, it's in his nature. That's who God is. And if God is love, then he has to love you. And if something is obligatory, then its, it's effect is completely minimized. For instance, if you're forced by your parents to clean your room, how much love do they receive from you cleaning your room? Very little. How much love are you giving? Very little. You have to. You're forced to. Especially if they say you're going to be grounded for years and whatever if you don't clean your room. How about when someone says, how many of you have done this before as a Christian? I'll forgive you because I'm a Christian and I have to forgive you. Well, what good is that? Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Will you ever forgive? Well, I'll forgive you because I'm a Christian. The impact is dulled because it's forced. And if God's love is forced, it also doesn't seem very special. But you see, God did choose to love you. You were chosen by him to do his good pleasure. Jesus, when he saw the multitudes, it says that he saw the multitudes and, and was moved with compassion. God is not this abstract, 
being that does not feel anything toward us. And in fact, our emotions, our feelings are a small fraction of what God is really like. And so people have this word called anthropathism. Anthropathism means taking human emotions and ascribing them to a a non-human being. But does it really make sense to look at verses like Ephesians chapter 3 verse 18 and say, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his anthropathism is. No, how deep his love is. God does have affections. God does care about you. But his love is so vastly different, but not different in a bad way, different in a better way. You see, our love is object-oriented. God's love is subject-oriented. When we love things, we love it for characteristics. If you are in a relationship or you have someone that you like, you like them for what they have. Oh, I love his smile. I like, you know, they sing me songs or their hair, the way they just like, they have that, you know, whatever, the queft, quaffed, whatever you call it. You like things about them. That's not the way God's love is. God isn't looking and says, well, heaven would be so boring without you. I need you in my life. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need anyone. But you see, God chose you. Why is that? You see, God's love is more like this. You're disgusting. You're dirty. You're useless. And you're ugly. But I see what my love can do in you. We've talked about this before. People define you by what you've done. God defines you by who you become. And God sees the potential in each and every one of you to become like his son. And so for that, God loves the world. You see, that's why God is able to love the world and we're not allowed to to love the world. Because when God loves us as sinful people, it's not because he wants to become like the world. It's not because he wants to become immersed inside the world. He calls people out of the world. Whereas we, when we love the world, it's because we want to be absorbed in the world. But God calls people out to become more like him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 through 5 says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. You know, in Christian circles, we can have this idea that we're, we're more virtuous if we do things without having feelings. Like if you do something for someone else, even though you don't want to, it somehow makes you a better person. Like if you don't want to forgive the person, but you do it because you're obligated to and you don't have the feeling toward, then you're a better person than the person that wants to forgive someone else. But That's obviously not the way the gospel is. We're not meant to just have no feelings when we forgive people and not meant to uh, love people in this way where you just kind of like you do it just because you have to. But part of the commandment to love is to feel affection for someone else. That might seem a little strange, but John chapter 13 verses 34 through 35 proves it. He says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you and you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Did he really mean 
If you go around and you start doing things because you have to, and like you go and like when someone hurts you, you're like, I forgive you because God told me to. And people are going to look at that relationship and be like, wow, God is real. He must love us. No. In fact, it will be by your abundance of affection for each other, regardless of the circumstances, that people will know that God must be among you guys. Didn't that person do this to that person? How is it possible that they still love that person? How is it that they, they forgave that person? It's because God has taken away your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. You have become a new creation. The old has died and the new has begun. You see, you're not supposed to love people out of your own heart, your own faculties. It's to be a new life from above. When God calls us to love the unlovable, he doesn't mean to love using the capacity we have, but to allow God to give us a new heart and a new spirit. That's how we're to love one another. Not this obligatory kind of love where it's just like, I just feel like I probably should because, and you should. There are times when you, you do have to do things even if you don't have the feelings, but the feelings will come if you obey, if you have a new life from above. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. And I think sometimes the difficulty here is that when, if God loves everybody, all of a sudden you don't feel so special. If God loves it, it, we say God loves you. Well, yeah, God loves everybody. If you're in a, a, a big family and your parents tell you that they love you, there's nothing special about you, you feel. Well, what's so special about me? Nature doesn't care about individuals. Nature could care less about you. The world does, doesn't care about individuals. It could care less about the homeless. It could care less about uh, people that are being abused. Statistics. But God does not deal in masses. He loves individuals. And we see that in the Bible time and time again. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, it doesn't say that God loved the multitudes. And God loved all these bunches of people and, and, and whatever. We don't see that when God speaks to people. But in fact, we see story after story, time after time, where God appears to the woman at the well, as we're going to learn the next time. When God appears to Nicodemus, talks about different characters that you can relate to and say, wow, if God loved that person, God most certainly must love me too. God doesn't deal in masses. He deals in individuals. And so some people look at this passage when it says world and say, well, this is saying that God loves the elect. God loves the Christians. But no, it's not talking about the wide scope. It's talking about how bad the world is. For God did not send his, world, uh, his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, there's some people that believe that they have to clean up their life before they come to God. But that's exactly what this verse contradicts. God didn't come into this world to just tell you, hey, everyone's going to hell and that's it. That's the end of the story. No, he came to save those people that were lost. Don't ever tell me that you're too far gone or you're without hope. But by finding hope in Jesus, you don't have to despair anymore. It's the very purpose for which Jesus came. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 through 16 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is Paul the Apostle speaking. Remember him murdering people and, and killing Christians. 
He says, however, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You know, some people look at that verse and are like, yeah, that's me. I'm the chief of all sinners. You probably aren't the chief of all sinners. When Paul said this, I kind of believe him. He's probably one of the worst people. But his example proves that Jesus can save anyone. That's what he's saying. If I'm that bad and God saved me, he'll also save you and he loves you too. But why is it that people don't believe this? Why is it that people don't want to believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Well, it says in verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. The true reason why people don't take a leap in the dark, the true reason why people don't take that step of faith is because they love their sin and they want to remain in the dark. If it's the case that you're trapped in sin and you can't find your, you can't find your way out of it, you have to put your hope in Jesus. You have to stop trusting yourself. And that person that has that heart just keeps on stumbling back in their sin, that keeps on falling away, but puts their hope in Jesus. That's the person that says, hey, listen, I'm coming to the light that my deeds can be seen, that they've been done in God. I've been searching for that light. I've been trying to come out of darkness. The Lord knows your heart. But the people that stay in the darkness, they prove that they want to stay in the darkness. Why? Because they love evil. They love the darkness rather than the light. But if you truly love the light, all you have to do is look to Jesus. That's it. You don't have to try to create light in the darkness. You just have to look at the light. In conclusion tonight, how much money should a guy spend on an engagement ring? Does anyone know? Vinny. Wow, you actually knew that. <laughs> Most jewelers recommend that you spend about three months of your salary. On average, people spend about $5,000 on an engagement ring. Now, if you're a guy, apparently, <laughs> you're not supposed to try to... <laughs> don't go around getting engaged by giving that girl a piece of ham like someone has tried in the past. <clears throat> I don't know what you're talking about. It was an engagement. It was just to show I care. Here's the thing, though. Why do people spend so much money on engagement rings? Why do people spend so much money on engagement rings? It's to show how much you care about that person. It's to show that you value that person. So if you give them a piece of hand, they're like, oh, all right. <laughs> you obviously do not care about me. Or you wish that I was a pork, a, a pig. John 15 verse 13 says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You see, Jesus paid the highest price for your salvation, his own life. That was his engagement ring to you, to show how much he cares. We were born into sin, born into this cruel world, 
And Jesus himself decided to do the exact same thing for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Here's the weird thing. Jesus came into this world to be, to, to be born into poverty so we could be born into royalty. He gave up his riches and his heavenly kingdom so that he could be with us so that we could become rich instead. God's love is not an, a concept to be admired. It's a reality to be felt. You know, Jesus, whenever we look at his love, whenever we look at this scripture, I feel like so many times when you, when you hear these things over and over and over again, its impact is dulled. But it's not something that you're just supposed to read and be like, all right, well, that's nice. It's nice that God loved us. It's supposed to transform your heart so that you go out and do the same for others. That's why in Ephesians 3 it talks about how deep God's love is. He says, I wish that you could know the, the height and the breadth and the, the depth of God's love, even though it's impossible to fully understand it. Why? Because if you got a glimpse of God's love for you, it would change your life and make you want to love other people, even the unlovable. That should change the way that we look at our friends, our enemies, you know, those people that you, you, you never thought in a million years you'd be friends with again. It should make us look at those people and say, you know what? Because God loved me with this amazing love, even though I'm not worth it, I'm going to love that person. And not because I, I feel like I'm going to be virtuous if I do things beyond feelings, but I pray, Lord, give me that, that heart of flesh. Remove my heart of stone. Give me your heart so I'm able to love as you loved and see lives changed. Let's pray. Father, 